0: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Lauren Downey has been described as the Sherlock Holmes of wine, an expert in exposing fraud and counterfeiting around the world. I caught up with her from her home in California to talk about wine investment, auction houses, provenance, bodyguards, working undercover and what she calls the six D's. Death, disaster, debt, donation, divorce and despair. It's a fascinating insight into the murkier side of the wine business. Hey Maureen, how are you? Hey, great to see you. <laughs> Likewise, what a pleasure to talk to you. Um, where are you at the moment? I mean, you travel around the world quite a bit, don't you?
1: Yeah, right now I'm uh, I'm down with my mom in, in Silicon Valley, and so California.
0: Yeah, so nice and early in the morning for you and a bit late in the afternoon for me, but thanks for getting up early.
1: Yeah, hey, no, no problem. Thank you to, to, for having me. Listen, so much I want to talk
0: to you about. I mean, you've just got this amazing career, but just start, I often do this by asking people a little bit about where they were born and brought up. And did your parents drink wine? You know, where are you from? Are you a California girl?
1: I am. I'm actually in the house that I grew up in. Um, so good timing for that. And uh, so, yes, I'm I'm actually a, a fifth generation San Francisco Bay Area native. Um, grew up here and uh, in Silicon Valley. Um which I think plays a factor later in in life. Um, and you know what I did grow up with a wine on the table. and that's not very common for people my age in, in America. but my dad um also my dad grew up in San Francisco, but he he spent a lot of time in Sonoma helping his father with water companies that he subsequently owned. Um so he was around wine country. so he grew up in a in a wine drinking. Um, environment. So there was always wine on the table at my house. And we had dinner as a family together every night. So With with wine,
0: yeah? Yes. Yeah. I mean, your early career was in the, in the restaurant trade. I mean, all sorts of places, Belgium, Utah, New York. I just wonder what that taught you about dealing, dealing with customers. And were you developing an interest in wine at the same time?
1: I was. So I went to Boston University thinking that I wanted to be like Julie McCoy from The Love Boat. And I wanted to run resorts and, you know, do all of that. But my freshman year of college, I took a wine course. Um, and it doesn't hurt that I was dating a Frenchman that lived in Paris at the time. So I spent a lot of time in France.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but so I did the wine course freshman year. Sophomore year, I studied abroad in Belgium and went to Paris a lot and did a, a wine course through Champagne, Burgundy and Sancerre. Um, and I really got the bug for for wine. And what I really liked about it was the academic kind of part of it too. Mm-hmm. My junior year, um, I was a part of a four-woman team who won Kevin's Rayleigh's wine challenge. Wow. So when when he was at
0: Windows on the World,
1: right? Correct. It was yeah. the Windows on the World Wine Challenge. So there was a collegiate side and a professional side. And we, four women and with a female coach, won the female side. Everybody was horrified. Cornell was horrified, and it was <laughs> really fun. And so at that point, everybody started sending us, you know, Clive Coates sent us all of the vine and we got so much stuff. So that I got the bug worse. And then, and I was only 20. Wow. So you're already a good taster, right? Yeah. Um, no, at the time it was just, trip you know, just knowledge. Mm. But my coach took us out to this wine bar and we got to taste all these wines we had never had. It was really fun. And then when I graduated from college, I took a, a Sterling course, a, a course at Sterling that was run by Master Sommeliers. It was the equivalent of the master some the, you know, the entry-level sommelier exam. And I did really well on that. And so Evan Goldstein called me and said, you know, I need you to come talk to me. So I went and saw him in Napa and he said, you know, you did really well. We want you to take the advanced master sommelier. So I took the advanced master sommelier at the age of 23. Wow. Um, But I had been sledding with a bunch of cute Austrian boys in Utah and so I had wiped out my ankle and I was on crutches. So I could do the tasting and I could do the theory, but I couldn't really do the practical. <laughs> and after I did the exam, so I'm, I'm 23 years old, Fred Dame came out. I'd never met the man before. And he sat me down and he said, okay, you are one of the best natural tasters I have ever seen. You are moving to New York or Las Vegas. Which one is it?
0: So you had to give up the cute boys in Utah, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then three weeks later, I had a job at Tavern on the Green in New York. So I was working in restaurants for a few years. Yeah. And how did you
0: move into the auction world then?
1: So Fred came back into town and I had run, you know, I had been a manager at the number one restaurant, you know, by Condé Nast and Les Benas and And then, you know, one of the top Italian restaurants, Validia. And he took me out to dinner and he said, you know, congratulations. Well done you. This is not why we moved you to New York. There's another advanced exam in three months and you're taking it. And I was like, well, okay. So I decided that I was going to kind of take the summer off and study. But I, I, you know, kids today have it so easy, don't they? They have Coravans. They have all these easy ways to taste. We had to open an entire bottle <laughs> to, to taste it. So it was expensive. So I went into Morell & Company to get a job, just like a summer job at the retail shop. And long story short, I ended up in the auction department, and this was mid 2020. So it was the auction world was was brand new.
0: And then you went to Zacky's and you went to Bonhams, right? Didn't you? So you Correct. were in the auction world for a while. Yeah, we still are in Well,
1: court. so and and it's important that you know auctions were only became legal in New York in 96, mm. and they only started in 98. Mm. So um, I was at Morell and Company at the time. There was Morell and Company, Christie's, and Zach or Christie's yeah. and. Christie's was with Zachy's and Sotheby's was with Alden Sellers. Mm. And then when Christie's and Zachy's split and Christie's was, or Zachy's was able to open up their own auction department, I became the first employee there and kind of set up the, Mm. this, you know, protocols and everything. But by then I was already like finding fakes.
0: I was going to say that. Did you have a sense? I mean, how seriously were auction houses taking the whole counterfeit wine scene back then? Was anybody even aware of it?
1: Um, they were aware of it. Like there were rumors that this Hardy Rodenstock guy who actually, I think, taught me how to authenticate mm. um, was counterfeiting wine. Mm. And it's it was undeniable that there was that there were counterfeit wines. I mean, there was a bottle of Petrus that I found one day in like. Remember the early, not the early days, but it, the Ch- Chilean glass used to be kind of blue and, mm. and light sometimes. Yeah. And I found a bottle of Petrus with that. And I asked, you know, my boss, I'm like, what is this? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's a fake. I'm like, what? There's fake wine. Like, so that's when I realized it. So that's when I started looking at things differently. And then Hardy Rodenstock wanted to buy some bottles. And he sent me a fax with all these questions about these bottles that we were selling. And eventually Peter Morrell said, oh, you know, they say he counterfeits wine. And I realized that he was having me authenticate bottles to buy, but from the mind of an authenticator. So that was a game changer. Then I started looking at things very differently. Mm.
0: I mean, you left Bonhams in, what, 2005? And you founded your own business, Chai Consulting, where you still are now. Did you see a gap in the market? I mean, by then, was the whole thing becoming a bit bigger?
1: Oh, it was big. So I first um, caught Rudy trying to sell counterfeits in 2002. This is Rudy Kurniawan, yeah? Rudy Kurniawan, yeah, the the infamous counterfeiter. Mm. And, um, you know, Eric Greenberg. Whom Bill Koch successfully sued for selling counterfeit wine, who was in business with Rudy. One of the emails was that we should be in business to quote sell suspects Bordeaux. Hmm. Kind of crazy. Um, and all of these were being, you know, the 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 main driver of it was the auction house Acromaro Condit with John Capon. So it was a it was a an open secret in the industry that this was happening. Hmm. Um, there were no there were, there were no surprises about it. Mm. And I started seeing it get worse. And in 2005, when Rudy had the Amazing Grace sale, where he allegedly had had um, just under three cases. This is a direct quote from John Capon Mm. about 1961 Latour Pomerol. Don't worry. He has just under three cases, all from the same importer and in his possession for decades. Mm. Rudy Kurniawan at the time was in his mid to late 20s. So not a shot. Because be I long. knew, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just not a shot. I knew Rudy, you know, two years for, I had known him for the two years before as a buyer, but of like, you know, California Merlot. Hmm. And you don't jump from California Merlot to 1961 Latour Palmerol, which was at the time one of the most hard to find wines in the world. I mean, On it's three just cases.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: All, all, and in his possession for decades. Like, What's great about counterfeiters is they always embellish just a little too far.
0: I'm going to ask you that later: is how you spot them. I mean, you're sometimes called the Sherlock Holmes of wine. I prefer Agatha Christie's Miss Marple in a way. But I, I, I just how much of your time is spent on detective work, as it were?
1: So, you know, at this point, I have a, a, a strong international team of authenticators. We're actually meeting; eight of us are, are going to meet in New York uh, week after next to do a fairly large job at two different locations. Mm. Um, and I spend a lot of time looking at bottles and doing reports, I would say about 50% of my time, maybe less, maybe 40% of my time. Most of my time is actually spent doing seller management. Um, you know, I, I, I help acquire, I help source Hmm. wines. I manage, um, you know, the actual physical collection, keep the inventories, you know, barcoding, all of that fun stuff. Um, and then one of the things that I'm heavily involved with right now is building legacy sellers. Tell us about those. How do those work? So, you know, people who have a lot of, this is a, a classically European thing, but some smart Americans are getting into it. I like collectors. I like working with people that drink their wine.
0: Hmm.
1: I don't rather, like- rather
0: than sell it on, you mean? Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, because there is an art and a love. And, you know, a lot of what I do in terms of authentication is about protecting the producers and, mm. and people that just speculate don't have a lot of respect for the producers, I don't mm. think. So, so I really prefer working with these kind of people. So one of my clients has six grandkids and he wants to build up a significant amount of wine in each one of their birth years. And so then they can
0: drink it, right?
1: Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, right now, the youngest one is one and a half. So okay. I'm buying futures. I'm not buying. He's a
0: grandkid, right?
1: Yeah, they're all grandkids. Yeah, and then you know, there's a couple in London who have some kids, and they they want to build up a collection, and yeah. so that's the fun part.
0: Yeah, I mean, you also appear as an expert witness sometimes, well, often in, in, in court cases. Yeah, I mean, sometimes for the government, or sometimes for for litigants.
1: Um, yeah, I've done. You know, I, I have. I've, I've done reporting for the DOJ,
0: the Department of Justice. Yeah, DOJ, Department oh, yeah, of Justice yeah, in yeah, the United States. Yeah.
1: But I I do a lot of expert witness. Um, on you know against Rudy Kurniawan in mm. particular, I started working with the FBI in 2008 on the Rudy Kurniawan case.
0: Mm.
1: He was arrested in 2012. Wow! Um, so uh, from 2002 when I started calling him out to 2012, that was a long and four years.
0: Break. Wow!
1: Well, it, but I started calling him out in t- 2002, so wow. I had, I was ten years in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do a lot of cases where like wh- the wineries that burn down out here, mm. uh, or if restaurants burn down. Mm. or um right now I'm the expert in a case where uh, a very well-known cult wine in California was sold to a large company and one of the one of the people who knows the owner thinks that he owns a stake in the winery mm. so I'm an expert on behalf of the of the winery that this guy didn't own a stake so I do a lot of different expert you know fine wine type stuff could, could you i mean
0: how I just You've said that, that, you know, counterfeit wine is a big problem. Could you put a global figure on it? I mean, tell us which countries have the biggest problem with it.
1: You know, I think that's really difficult. I can tell you which countries have the biggest problem. Hmm. You know, if we knew exactly how much crime there was, then that would mean that we had solved it. Yeah. So I always think it's funny when people are upset that all that you can do is extrapolate from known production and then, you know, how much shenanigans are, are, actually, are actually found and then how much we think are still out there. Mm. According to the World Health Organization, 25% of all, of all alcoholic beverages consumed are illicit. Wow. So that, that, means, that means either counterfeit or adulterated, um, but it also means um, sold on the black market.
0: But that's covering so, beer, spirits, everything, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. It is. Spirits probably has a higher percentage than wine mm-hmm. um but there's still a lot of uh um, there's still a lot of government and and industry support a lot of industry uh players have done analyses and such to, to support a 20% number. About 20% of all wine is counterfeit.
0: It's unbelievable, isn't it? And, and, and is most of it happening at the fine wine end? Or presumably, there, there you know, the volume end is seeing some counterfeiting as well. I mean, I read somewhere recently that Blossom Hill, which is nobody's idea of a fine wine, is suffering from counterfeit wines too. Is that true?
1: Well, and Yellowtail. Yellowtail has a oh. huge problem. And, you know, Penfolds at the lowest, at the, at the most entry levels oh. has a huge problem. And Gallo at the entry levels has huge problems. So it, unfortunately um, you know, this is a crime that, that, that runs the gambit. It affects everybody. There are a lot of mid-level Bordeaux producers who are shocked to see videos of their wines being produced commercially on bottling lines in China. Mm. Um, But on the high end, I think on the, on the highest end, what we're looking at is um, for really good fakes. We're looking at production in Europe, and as of late, I think there's another counterfeiter in California.
0: Wow. Okay. I mean, you talked about Rudy, Konywan, and you, you know, you were on his case for 10 years and you identified him as what you called a problem consigner when you're working for Zackies. But why did it take so long for him to be caught? Do you think? Why was he able to fool so many people?
1: I don't think he did fool, but fragile male ego hmm. is the answer to that question. <laughs> Hubris oh, yeah. and fragile male ego. Because, I mean, it was so obvious that this kid was full of Donkey Kong.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And that, you know, this, but the problem is there was this group of guys and the timing was perfect Mm. um, for this, for this crime to be perpetrated. And it truly is like an American hubris Mm. position. This could not have happened in Europe. It just couldn't have. Because what you had were a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of young men Mm. with a lot of money and a little bit of knowledge because the internet had come in. So they'd been reading Robert Parker Mm -hmm. and they wanted the best. And they had this character in John Capon who threw huge dinner parties. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote these big emails about them Mm -hmm. and he gave everybody a nickname and everybody wanted to be part of that group. Mm -hmm. And if you were looking on the outside with a, you know, with any kind of intelligence, you would have seen right through it Mm -hmm. because what they were doing was disgusting. I mean, it was misogynistic and, you know, at one, at one email, they, they joked about a, a, a female sommelier going to New Jersey to, you know, to work one of these dinner parties. And wasn't it funny, haha, that this guy, it must be the first time he paid a woman to come to his house that didn't have to have sex with him. Like gross stuff. Yeah. Um, but for some, but that caused the prices to go up and up and up. Mm. So this group internally mm. um, really had a great pump and dump scheme. You know, and Capon would write in the emails like, "Oh, we just had, you know, another 1950 Latour Pomerol from, um, from Lafleur Magnum, fourth time tasted this month." Um, you know, and the cork was blank, so that's fine. Well, and then he'd sell a whole bunch of magnums, you know, and with What's blank corks. So they, he did. They did a really good job of setting up and substantiating the fraud. And I think that there were just a lot of people who had a lot of money and not a lot of sense, and they mm. were happy to go along. They wanted to be part of the party. Mm. Maybe these guys had not been part of the party in their whole lives, and now they had the money to yeah, and they suddenly buy were. their way in. Yeah,
0: right. I mean, Ru- and Rudy like never spoke in his own defense. He's now out of jail, I believe. I don't know where he is. He's somewhere in the Far East, is he? Um, are we in any- Singapore? Sing- Singapore, is he? Are we any closer to knowing who, if anyone, funded him? Where he got the wines he used to make the fake blends from?
1: We've known that it's all public evidence. It's it's posted on com. I mean, you can see that in The seller and The seller 2, there are a number of people, and again, these are publicly available records and FOIA requests, anybody can have them, um, that show the number of people that loaned Rudy millions of dollars through Acker Merrill Condit. So somebody would give Acker a million dollars, that would get funneled to Rudy, Rudy would use it to, to buy bottles and wax and corks and, and, and wine. And we know what wine he was using. We, we have all those records, hmm. you know, he was re- using cheap Merlot from Washington and blending it with Marcusin and, and other things. Um, but, you know, yeah, we know all of that. And, and again, there's no blowback.
0: So he must've been a good blender, right? The, the,
1: the, oh, know, absolutely. Nothing else. <laughs> absolutely. And, the the notebooks that were seized from his home, my team was was um, was able, as were other people, yeah. able to go in. We spent a full week with the evidence that was seized from his home, um, and the notebooks. So so we cataloged everything. We cataloged all the capsules, all the the labels, yeah. everything, yeah. Um, and we were able to uh, to also look at all these notebooks, which were his tasting books, yeah. and he would try to emulate. The, the tasting notes of Broadbent of and Parker. Um, and then he would go, you know, take the bottles to the party, to the dinners. And he would ask the guys. And so if they would say that it was off, he'd go back and try to fix the blend.
0: And, and all of this stuff is on winefraud.com, which is the website you set up in 2015, right? With a big Correct. database of labels and, and, and the frauds that people should be looking out for. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So there's evidence on there if people want to look at it. Is that accessible to anybody?
1: yeah we we moved the Rudy Kurniawan evidence to the in front of the paywall um yeah. earlier, well, not earlier this year last year, yeah you know we figured it's been ten years, yeah you know, have at it, have some fun mm-hmm. um so yeah, that's all there.
0: It's interesting what you said earlier that the most common mistake fraudsters make if that's the right word counterfeiters make is is they just go a bit too far? Can you tell us what you mean
1: well, so a couple of weeks ago, I looked at some ridiculous bottles. Um, some Romane Conti with you know, the 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 capsules did not match the era of the labels. Mm. You know, they were 1971s. There were between four bottles, there were three different labels. Um, you know, some of them had the same printing errors. Mm. And then there were some large format Vogue wines. And the guy who was quote representing the collector. Um, and fortunately my client had me look at these wines. He he is so smart. He has he has us look at wines prior to purchase, Mm -hmm. which is the way it should be done. Mm -hmm. So um there were some, you know, three liter or or, yeah, three-liter and five liter Vogue wines, 1985 and 1986. And so the guy got talking and I let him go. I let him tell, I let them tell their their stories Mm -hmm. because they end up burying themselves you know, he ended up saying, oh, yeah, you know, my, the reason that it's number one of three serial number is that, you know, my, my friend, you know, who I'm representing was such good friends with George Devogway. He gave him these bottles himself. George Devogway died in 1986. So there's no possible way that a 1985 five liter Musoni." was given unless he got it from a ghost <laughs> so you know things like that are, are pretty great and and you just let people talk and they'll you know they'll talk i mean i already had a lot of issues with the bottle but to have a fantastical tale like that is even better
0: tell us what steps the, the wineries are taking you know to 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 to, to stop the, the the fraudsters i mean they're using chips and things like yeah. that or the labels yeah. and things on labels that only they can see or what
1: so the problem is with post-kerniawan. Wineries realized that they really needed to do something about this, but you know, these are people that spend their time making beautiful beverages for us, mm-hmm. not being immersed in technology. So unfortunately, um, 99.9% of everything that they have done is cosmetic. Yeah. So they've switched from plate pressing to digital printing mm-hmm. so that they can put invisible ink and micro writing and things like that. But unfortunately, organized crime has looked at that and said, sweet, mm-hmm. we can now replicate those labels very easily. Yeah. And an organized criminal, you know, organized crime guys have also looked at it and said, okay, look at all these people that get caught doing wine fraud. They get a slap on the wrist. Mm. If you get caught trafficking drugs or humans, you go to jail.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, even people that get caught selling counterfeits really only get a fine at max, especially Mm. in Europe. Mm. Um, So Rudy's the only person that's ever really gone to jail for this. Really? In the world? Uh, yeah. For any significant period of time. Wow. So, you know, so the problem is that digital print or what organized crime has done is they, they get a real bottle and they replicate it. They have a glass producer in Bulgaria, make the, the, the embossed glass. They get the, 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 the same paper. They have a printer, professional printer you know, source the same paper with all of the invisible ink and micro writing and serialization. And they have the tissue paper made and they have the OWCs made and the bands, everything. Mm -hmm. It's, it's amazing. So, you know, now one of the only ways that, that producers have to, to fight this is really to, um, have oversight through their distribution channels. Mm -hmm. And right now wine distribution is one of the most opaque, you know, systems in the world. So until they have oversight through that, mm. through the supply chain mm. and into the secondary market, mm. um, I think that we're we're going to continue to see this problem get bigger and bigger, which is what we're seeing. T- tell us how you've got this chai vault
0: chip uh, RFID chip. Just tell us how this chip works uh, as an authentication tool.
1: So the Shea vault is more than a chip. It's it's actually a, a Shea whole, vault. A, or
0: I should know it, The word Shea, not right? chai. It's, it's, not, it's not Chinese, is it? It's shea, Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Right, shave no. all, shake consulting, no. no, management. No, no, yeah, get yeah,
0: it yeah, 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 yeah. makes sense.
1: So um, the it's it's a layered system that is blockchain secured mm-hmm. because we've got to have layers. I mean, anything that's single layer can be easily replicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we have is a proprietary chip that that goes underneath the capsule. Um, it actually gets embedded in the capsule by the capsule producer, mm-hmm. um, so that the bo- the the bottles go on the bottling line exactly as they would today uh the the difference is our capsules most fine wine capsules are are tin and you can't read a chip through metal so mm-hmm. we have developed with enoplastic, a way to replicate um the top of the capsule that is not metal but that doesn't change the look and feel of the bottle mm-hmm. or of the capsule so fantastic there so that goes on the bottling line we just plug a little piece into the bottling line that takes um pictures of the bottle from all angles simultaneously it scans the chip, it scans a QR code, mm. and all of that information, along with about 90 data points that are already in our software, mm. come together to create a blockchain ledger.
0: Okay. And that, that travels with the wine throughout its life, basically.
1: It does. Now, at the lower end, for example, you know, if you're if it's a cheaper wine and you just want to ensure that it's real, we can just use the chip. Mm. It doesn't have to have a ledger that, that you know, that changes provenance with, with every resale. Yeah. But your distributor can can, you know, uh, can scan an entire pallet and know that that's correct. Mm-hmm. That's um, and, that, and the producer has oversight into that to see where their bottles go. Because mm-hmm. one of the problems that we have right now, a fine wine producer will send an allocation to Germany or to Canada. Yeah. And that importer will turn around and resell those bottles directly to either auction houses mm-hmm. or brokers in New York because they get more money. Mm. But that's not where the producer wants the wine to be. Mm. So this this also solves that problem. So it gives the producers, you know, empowers producers to really have oversight. I mean, right now, yeah. if we have an issue, and this is true the world over, and I and I talked to another great Burgundy producer this week. Um we have to check serial numbers and the market that they are in to make sure that those match. And they do that mm. by looking up in little
0: books which is crazy it's very old-fashioned right
1: right or they look up their their in the united states they look up their fedex records to see who bought what (laughs) i love that tell tell us something else i like your definition
0: of the six d's the reason why people sell wine death disaster debt donation divorce and despair (laughs) where do you come in are you dealing with
1: all six of those or not (laughs) absolutely uh, and I, I have to say, I think I've probably saved a couple marriages because, you know, sometimes the bottle, the, the cases start leaking out of the cellar and then they're kind of going down the hall a little bit. And one more case and the, and the clothes washer machine would be blocked. And that's the point at which the guy gets kicked out of the house, right? <laughs> so, so which of those is that? that, is, that, is, that that's the, is that the disaster or the divorce or the despair? I think that's despair. <laughs> okay. But it, it could be disaster if he has to lose half of his cellar in a divorce. Exactly. So he could be covering multiple Ds there. Yeah. I mean, it seems to so you
0: also, have, as you said earlier, advise clients about wine investment, but more in terms of drinking wines, actually. There seems to be a lot of naivety surrounding this sector of the market. Um, are there any wines that are guaranteed to make people rich or to increase in value? And if so, which are they? You seem to be very few of them, aren't there?
1: Absolutely there are. But the problem is you've got to have a lot of money to make money. Yeah. Um, you know, if you look at, and I think this is one of the reasons that, that Burgundy, we've seen Burgundy prices skyrocket really since the Cornelia fraud started, but it's also been because the market has expanded, you know, mm. Asia has come into play. We have more people buying fine and rare wine mm. today than we ever have. And th- those, those vineyards can't get bigger. Mm. You know, in the new world, we can go buy 10,000 more acres, mm. but Conti or Musini are never going to get bigger. Yeah, um, and also, you know, according to production laws, we can't produce; they can't produce more. Mm. So we have, whenever you have a situation of uh, supply that is limited mm. um, and and increasing demand, money is is going to be made. So mm. all of the most expensive burgundies are only going to get more expensive. Mm. Uh, first growths are only going to get, you know, increasingly more expensive.
0: This is Bordeaux first growths, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. so I, you know, I think any. One of but one of the things that this has done, this this you know rise in this in the market, is made people look to other regions, which I think is interesting, because it's really allowed a spotlight on South Africa and Chile and Argentina and you know Spain. Obviously, is, has been there for a long time, but people are now turning to Spain for investment wine. Mm-hmm. So that's I, you know that, I, I try to find the the silver lining in all of it, but. It, um, but those the best wines from all regions, um, the best wines from all the classic regions that have proven themselves through time, yeah. will always be a good investment. I, mean, I
0: suppose the point is you just have to get hold of the wines. I mean, sometimes you you know if it's if it's I don't know Lafleur or it's or it's Latache, you know, there's not a lot of that made, as you said, and there's a waiting list, and you've got to know the importer and get hold of it, right?
1: Correct, and that's why that is a, a ripe opportunity for fraud. A fraud, yeah. I
0: mean, I like your distinction between asset class bottles and wines for drinking. I mean, is there ever a crossover between the two? I mean, some people do drink asset class bottles, don't they?
1: So my, you know, my kind of mantra, mantra is that the only investment that one should make in wine mm. is an investment in a future occasion. Mm. If, if you're not buying wine with a plan to someday drink it, Um, I think that's really sad. Mm. At the same time, people who are hoping that maybe their wines will have a return, Mm. you know, don't ignore the return of opening an amazing bottle at an amazing occasion with family and friends. That is also an investment in the future.
0: It's almost a bigger return, isn't it?
1: I think, well, yeah, money can't buy the best experiences. So Sometimes I think it's really important that people have a right mindset and that they're – so like these these people who are building legacy collections, mm. you know, they're they're building future experiences. So I, I like to look at investment that way rather than just monetarily.
0: Not just cash, yeah, and I think it's yeah. a good point. Do, do you think people should be wary of buying wines at auction? I mean, you work for three auction houses. What advice would you give to people who are buying at auction?
1: Um, I think most auction houses today are, are more careful than – uh, than most retailers. You know, one one of the problems that we've had with this expanding fine wine market is that everybody who's worked on the floor of a restaurant for six months thinks that they're an expert in fine wine because they've opened up one vogue Um, and they think, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be a broker now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of these people have uh, certified sommeliers and masters of wine do not have training in authentication. Just because your father owned a wine store and you've been doing it for forty years, does not mean that you have osmosed <laughs> the ability to forensically inspect a bottle of wine. Yeah. Um, so I, I am actually, at least we know that auction houses, because they're under a microscope, go through the process of vetting wine. Yeah. Many brokers will get an email and they'll forward that email until somebody somewhere down the chain finds a buyer. And then the wine is shipped from someplace else. They've never even seen it,
0: and they won't check the wine.
1: No, the wine is never looked at. Yeah. So I'm actually mm-hmm. more afraid of of most retailers and 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 brokers than I am of auction houses.
0: It, it, that's interesting, isn't it? So the auction houses are under the most scrutiny, really.
1: Correct. Yeah. People are looking at them and expecting them to be baddies. So you yeah. know, people are they've got. The light is has been you know is, is shining on auction houses, mm-hmm. although some of them are getting sloppy again mm-hmm. Fercion. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have uh they, they've gone through the the malaise of getting over the Kurniawan fraud mm-hmm. and um they now it, things are thing, things are getting sloppy again mm-hmm. is the best way to put it
0: yeah I mean, you, you, tell us a bit about living in California because you're some of even expert on the state's wines. I mean, just quickly, I just wonder how you see. The, the, the state developing the industry developing over the next twenty years, particularly with what's happening with climate change and the fires we're seeing, um, you know, are we going to see a different California emerging from that?
1: Um, you know, I think with time, I and mean, one of the one of the things that the the old world has on us is a, is a couple thousand years in terms of what grapes go with what soil, mm. and you know, interestingly, the Napa Valley, the Napa Valley itself, um, contains more soil types than are found in all of France. Mm. So, kind of interesting. Mm. Um, I do think that we're going to see a change. I think that you know we're going to see the wines from the north, um, you know, picking up more. If you want high acid, you're going to you're going to go more to Oregon and Washington. Closer to the ocean, right? Well, and closer to the ocean. Fortunately, the the mitigating factors of the ocean do help to affect climate change. And as long as the growing season can stay long enough mm-hmm. for grapes to reach physiological ripeness. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that we're going to be okay if you're if you're coastal. Yeah. I think the inland wines are getting pretty. You know, they, they will be getting pretty jammy. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: But there's a market for that. Yeah. You know, as cheap wines, right? Well, yeah, but as people go from you know Coca Cola to wine, mm. that jammy wine that you know this is the phenomenon that we saw in the '80s where people they first went to the the jammy Australians and then the jammy California and then mm. then they try the Rhone and then they go to Bordeaux and. And then they come back to classic California. So it, it, the, the market will figure itself out.
0: I mean, you, you've been named as one of the most, 50 most powerful women in wine. I, I just wonder what, what is it that makes you so good at your job? I mean, attention to detail. You've got an acute bullshit filter. <laughs> do, you think, I mean, do you think you'd have
1: be been a good policewoman somewhere down the line or not? Totally. I would have been an amazing lawyer. I mean, I spend, what do I actually spend my days doing? Working with lawyers. Because yeah. whether it's about counterfeit wine or wineries that burn down or people that think that they own wineries, I am I'm always dealing with lawyers. Um, I think I'm good at authentication because I have a bit of a uh, uh, photographic memory,
0: yeah.
1: a little bit of OCD. Yeah.
0: So once you've seen a label, you remember it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Details stick in my head. Yeah. And um, and I'm tenacious. Yeah. And you have to be tenacious to fight yeah. fraud. You got to be patient. Also very patient because it takes a long time for this stuff to, to actually come forward. But I'm patient. Took 10 years with Rudy.
0: But you got him in the end. Yeah. I've, I wonder if you've ever been scared doing your job. I and mean, There's some pretty nasty people involved in counterfeiting wine, I'm sure. I mean, yeah. do you ever need a bodyguard when you go to places? I do.
1: Yeah. I've, so I've been physically assaulted. And uh, if I go to a big tasting now, like a La Pole or something, I will take a bodyguard. And I've needed it. I, he's, he's kept John Capon away from me before. Oh, so people have come up and started shouting at you? Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I totally. In the middle of La Polée one year, John Capon just went nuts on me. Because I had, I had a little handheld microscope. And I was showing people, yeah, see the pixelation on there? That should be plate pressed. And there were people from his table that were asking me, and they bought the bottles from him, and he didn't like that very much. No.
0: <laughs> Exactly. I mean, you know, as you said, you've got to be tenacious, but you've got to have guts as well, haven't you? I mean, that must yeah. be quite scary, isn't it, when you, that you think these people are after you?
1: That's not scary. The, I, I've, I've gone undercover for the FBI. That was scary. But it was also really funny. Can you tell us more or not? No. No, totally. I mean, I went in to check out these guys, and I, they mic'd me up. And my co- if I had said the phrase, Bill's not going to like this, they would have stormed the building. And I had to check in every 15 minutes to tell her that I was okay. And, you know, I'm acting like I'm looking at wine for a guy that wants to buy it. And then the debrief was the best. I mean, there were like 40 (laughs) people apparently following me. We were driving out afterwards and I got in my car and I'm driving. And I, I thought I was on a text message just with the FBI agent that I work with. And all of a sudden it says she turned the wrong way. And I'm like, who's on this text? And then there was another text. It's okay. We got her. And then a couple of minutes later, I'm driving on the freeway, and somebody else goes, "This woman drives like a crazy woman," and I was <laughs> like, "Who oh, are <all> these people?" <laughs> God, I mean, it's quite exciting
0: the world of counterfeit wine, isn't it? It's, Listen, yeah, it's kind of fun. Final question: Apart from drinking wine, uh, which I know you do, you do, do you like cooking? What else do you do in your spare time?
1: I love cooking. Cooking, um, I, I, you know, making mise en place. And this is going to be weird, but I I do puzzles, puzzles, especially wooden puzzles. I rip through uh, about a, a one and a half wooden puzzles a week. It's a very expensive habit, I have to tell you. So maybe but that's it's kind, of kind of the like,
0: OCD thing again, is it, or that attention to it detail?
1: It's it's all of those things, but it's 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 akin to meditation because I can just sit there and immerse myself in the puzzle and not think about work or life or anything else. I have a nice glass of wine and I can. You know, do a landscape or whatever. And that that is seriously my jam. And how many of those are you doing a week? One to one and a half. I, I can get through about five hundred pieces a day.
0: <laughs> this is an expensive habit, isn't
1: it? It's so expensive. And but the puzzles are amazing. Liberty puzzles and Nautilus puzzles. They're these thick wooden puzzles and they're they're just fantastic
0: Maury listen I mean what a story it's been so great talking to you I mean you're just a great friend and a unique figure in the world of wine and thank goodness we have you basically that you're out there you know thank fighting you. the good fight and putting these bastards behind bars excuse my I'm English I'm trying, <laughs> trying. I mean, love to see you and I hope I'll see you very soon in London or in the yes. States or somewhere somewhere around the world
1: yes Tim great to see you I, I miss you madly. I'm so excited that COVID is over and we can all get back to Not drinking virtually, but, you know, actually chin-chinning.
0: We'll be sharing a good bottle very soon.
1: Yes. Thank you. Ciao. Bye.
0: Well, well, don't mess with Maureen, is all I can say. What a brave and talented woman. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Miguel Marino Jr. from Briones in Rioja. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim AtkinMW. See you next
1: week.